This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. You are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show for episode 2 of 2024. I really hope you all had a lovely festive season and it is certainly great to be back in the studio. If you haven't recognised by now, it's Chloe Foster right here. Joining me today in the studio are three of my favourite people in the world. Uh, good morning to Tex Moon, team leader at the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Gardens. Morning. Happy Emily, New Year, everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> Emmeline Bowman, landscape architect G'day. at STEM, landscape oh. architecture. Yes, good morning. Good morning. And um, new kid on the block, <laughs> Russell Lark, senior curator at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria Cranburn. What a title, mate. I oh, know, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Thanks, it is. Chloe. <laughs> it's, it's actually nice for me because I listen to this every Sunday, so it's nice to come in and have a chat. Yeah, wake up just that little bit earlier. Today. Yeah, well, I haven't, haven't been up at this hour on a Sunday for about 25 years. I don't yeah, think. it's very yes. hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do it because we love it. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> we're half asleep sometimes. Guys, how are your gardens going towards the end of summer? Well, it's still bloody, it's been wet. It feels like it's just had an extended spring. I know. Things <laughs> mine, are still green. Mine is mm. all green. It's really big. i got a lot of weeds. <laughs> it's gone out of control. I think I'm just going to let it do its thing. I'll trim it all back and let it go for next year. Is there anything particularly that's gone nuts? I only have a little garden because I'm in Thornbury at the moment. And I've got like orthoxanthus and, you know, um, some little grevilleas. I have wastrinjias and things like that. The wastrinjias have become like three meters. <laughs> and the orthoxanthus. I have this particular kind that gets quite big, and the width on these things now are getting to about 800 mil, and they're just taking over everything. I've got literally no space. I do have a salvia in there. It's gone freaking bonkers. So you're gonna put a shovel through the orthoxanthus <laughs> soon? No. I love them. Oh, well, you just said it's getting big. I know. I think I'll when I move, I'm gonna dig them all up and repot them because I can't get this. I can't get this species anywhere. Like I'm so specific when I go to only plant multi cells it. Coria nursery, I'll, I'm, yeah, Coria nursery, aisle twenty one. <laughs> Orthoxanthus <laughs> multiflorus, which is not a multiflorus. It's oh. something cool. 
and and it has really long weeping foliage and bigger flowers and it's only that one the rest yeah. of it's all spiky You've given your secret away now. People are going to yeah. get down. Oh, no. So yeah. Don't go. That's yeah. it, yeah. Oh, no. What have I done? Do you know, we're on air at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a fool. <laughs> I tend to give out too much information <laughs> all the time. I'll see Hopefully, everyone's anyway. still asleep. Yeah. yeah. You'll see Russ in right away. <laughs> it is nice, though. Yeah. Tex, yep. how's your garden? Yeah, same. Very green. Um, it's, uh, we've, you know. One of the, another fortunate summer where we've sort of had three three of these in a row, and it's 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 a really nice time. We're actually getting starting to see a bit of autumn colour already, mm. just with a few sort of cooler nights, and and so yeah, we're still cutting plenty of lawns and things like that, which we would usually be uh, slowing right down on by now. But um, but yeah, it's it's beautiful, and right at the moment, I think it's my, my favourite tree in the gardens are, are out in flower, which is the Aloxalan panatum. The Dorigo Waratah, which mm. I oh. just think are, are unbelievable, and they just—you can see them from a distance up there, just just out in the beautiful red. I didn't bring any in because I spoke about them heaps last, this time last year. So, <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah, but I wasn't on the show then, and I would like to. See oh, them. I should have so brought one in. FYI, yeah. when we're on early next year, <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to come up. Oh, they're stunning. Bring the students up, yeah. Stunning plants. Yeah, they are. I think they're they're amazing. I put one in my garden, and uh, I don't know how easy they are to get hold of. I don't know whether Karen can sell them or anyone, but Karen would be able to get them for you. Mm. I reckon if you if you ask them, they used to stock a lot of uh, rainforest plants or species in forestry tubes. Yeah, they you know because sort of it's a little bit niche, so yeah, yeah, they exactly. were never big sellers, so they don't have them anymore. Uh, but I I think they'd be able to order it in for you. Yeah. Yeah, well, we do. Aloxalum panatum grows really well for us up, up in the Dandenongs, but we we can't do the, the other one, the Flemium, which is uh, from higher up. Do you yeah. guys grow that at all? No, uh, we don't. No. I no. heard that there might be a grafted variety coming mm. down. I, I have been wondering about that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. So for anyone that is wondering this plant that we're talking about, Oh, yeah. It is similar to the Stenocarpus firewheel tree that's yeah. really common in a lot of public gardens. Mm. Different foliage. Different foliage, mm. yeah. Uh, different, much oh, be- nicer flower in my head. I, yeah. I just think they're they're beautiful, and and it's not the full kind of waratah flower. They're, I guess, more half. almost more that half kind of toothbrushy, half kind baked. Of, yeah, yeah, flower, <laughs> but 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 in full and just contrasting beautifully with this glossy green foliage. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. What a plant! What a plant! And you've got plenty of them in dandy ranges. Oh, there's a couple. There's, but they they certainly stand out, and they are sort of above that shrub layer, um, below the mountain ash <laughs> trees, well and truly below those. But but they sort of sit in a in a nice layer where you see them from a distance. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's lots to still to see up in the the Dandenongs with like a lot of varieties still out in in flower that just go all year round and uh, perennials things like that. So yeah, it's a good time to be up there. Yeah, the varieties are good to have over summer because they flower. Yeah, we'll I think you do, if yeah. if you've got a collection of varieties, you'll have something flowering pretty much year round. They yeah. just spot flower constantly. Yeah. So, yeah, and just back to the aloxalan, the cultivation requirements are they a little bit frost tender? Likely, I would say we yeah. we're lucky up in the in Alinda where we get cold, but we tend to not have. Um, frost up there that rolls off us and we don't really get below zero but yeah i would expect that they would certainly be a bit frost tender how do you think they would go down in the suburbs 
How do you think they'd go down in the suburbs, <laughs> Chloe? I, uh, yeah, no, I, I think... I, I would love to put one in, but I, I think it'd be too dry. Yeah. Dry, I think, again, you'd have to experiment with the right spot. Yeah. Um, and They need you know, a little bit of protection from, like, westerly sun. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe a bit of frost protection. Yeah. I reckon that down near Mulvern and Turaka, it would do well. Yeah. It might be a bit too exposed to your place. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those species that needs cover, though. So, so you kind of build, you know, we, we grow a whole bunch of warm temperate things and uh, rainforest species in Cranbourne, um, which is pretty hot and dry through mm. summer. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to establish that canopy and then you can you can start getting in some of those yeah. more, you know, frost tender species or things that do need protection from sun. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your mm. report. Russ, mm. keep talking. Let's get to know you yes. a little bit more. I know this makes everyone super awkward. Doesn't it? But yeah. the listeners, <laughs> I'm telling you, you they, <laughs> yeah. they want to know more about you. How long have you been at um, the Botanic Gardens at Cranbourne for? I've been at Cranning for 11 years now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm becoming one of the old timers, which yeah. is frightening. I was sort of the young one when I first got there. but um, One of the fossils. Yeah. <laughs> so so I've gone through being a, a horticulturalist there, um, just looking after some living collections. And then I was team leader for six or seven years. Um, of horticulture and then I had a secondment for a year um, as a conservation horticulturalist which probably doesn't mean a lot to to people out there but basically looking after um, the the horticultural side of establishing conservation collections so we uh, work a lot with um, science um, so the seed guys and the um, genetics team um, and we've been growing a whole bunch of genotype collections on the back of things like bushfire recovery work and flood recovery and that sort of stuff so and then yeah have just become uh, appointed the curator in the last couple of months so so what do you have to do as a curator well i i think i can just get back and hang out with all my plants that's the main mm. thing that i'm excited about so i i think really it's just about um providing some direction for the living collection so we're, we've had a big kind of transformation over the last five or six years at, at Cranbourne from just purely being an aesthetic garden to to really incorporating a whole bunch of um, rare and threatened and wild collector material into into the garden um, from southeastern Australia so um, yeah just continuing to steer that in our conservation programs and and making sure our gardens are looking schmick you know that sounds like a pretty easy job. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you make it sound That's easy. Great. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I love it. So it is It is easy. I mean, it's a dream job for anyone, really, um, getting the curator job. So, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty happy, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, congrats, mate. Thanks. Uh, now, something that I do ask um, all our new people, uh, what's your favourite plant? Oh, that's like choosing your favourite child, isn't it, really? Yeah. Lucky I've only got one child. You, so you can name a, you can name to a top five if you want. Yeah, look, I, full disclosure, I love my eucalypts. So probably eucalyptus to trap trap would be my favourite mm. species. So this this might not be a species that um, people are familiar with, but it, it only gets a sort of two or three metres. It's got it, it's got the largest, the thickest leaves in the, in the genus. Um, and it has these beautiful... Um, huge red buds um, and, and sort of pinky flowers. Mm. So I've chased that all across the bottom of um, Western Australia from Cape Arid to, to Fitzgerald River. So there's a whole bunch of different forms. There's prostrate ones at Point Anne in, in Fitzgerald River National Park. And, yeah, just a, a non-competitive eucalypt species that can grow a whole suite of things underneath, which mm. is always good. Mm. Um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, <coughs> I, I have recently become obsessed with grevilleas as well. So <laughs> yeah, uh, and and possibly we'll be talking about some of these later. But um, <laughs> we we went on a mission at Cranbourne to collect all of the Victorian uh, grevillea species. So we've got all. It's about 60-odd. Um, so that's been fun, just cruising around, getting all of them. Um, but, yeah, eucalypts are my first love. So my first five would probably be Mallies, to be honest. Yeah. You've also, in the in line with the grevilleas that you've collected, you and a couple of the other Hort staff have collected a number of ukes. We have, yeah. Uh, what's the fact with that? I can't remember the category name. Is it all endemic ukes to Victoria? We're pretty close. Yeah. yeah. So we've got we've got one left to get, um, which is a mystery because Ooh. we've 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 been up there. To I love have a, look a plant at it. mystery so, too. Um, yeah, we're still we're still looking for it at the moment. A couple of us. So um, yeah, there's like we've covered a fair bit of ground over the last last few years, and uh, we wanted to. Um, our catchphrase was at the time when we decided on this change of direction that we wanted to be the Kings Park of Victoria. You know, no one's going to do WA flora like Kings Park. And we mm. felt, you know, yeah. Victoria's got this mm. huge suite of um, different vegetation communities. You know, we're, we're probably more blessed than WA in a sense. We've mm-hmm. got the Alps and we've got warm temperate, cool temperate mm-hmm. rainforests. We've got the Western Plains. We've got limestone coast down Portland. Yeah. You know, we've got all and these. And the Mallee, like yeah. up mm. in the west of yeah, Victoria. Exactly. It's pretty varied. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. So we, we wanted to build a collection to, to kind of reflect that so yeah it's been fun absolutely yeah. uh can you tell us what species of uke you're after yeah eucalyptus phoenix phoenix, phoenix. yeah yeah never heard of it. so where is it supposed to be it um it's up around nunniong okay yeah so nunniong plateau for yeah, plant home. yeah yeah so we're yeah yet Why? to find it i think i think you know potentially it's a it's a hybrid um mm-hmm. but anyway I'll, I'll leave that to the taxonomist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a lowly gardener. You know? <laughs> so it, adding the, the scientific like, aspect to the botanic gardens mm. in the last few years, it has there's been a huge transformation down at Cranbourne yeah. yep. because of that. Aesthetically, it's looking fantastic yeah. as well, but yeah. scientifically to have such a huge increase in diversity yeah. is, is pretty special. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, and I know that... Cranbourne team pretty well too and, and they're inspiring the way that they they do this work and what it does on a broader scale is is make you know a lot of these plants available to other botanic gardens to sort of share and duplicate these collections of uh, really important plants so so and provenance we know where they come from all of yeah. that sort of stuff mm-hmm. which is in, really important mm-hmm. from a living collections point of view so so yeah well yeah. done cranny team yeah, yeah well done. It's great botanic gardens have always been a bit of a you know a safe haven for rare and threatened plants but it's a, pe- a lot of people probably don't realize that when they're sort of walking around because they also no. such beautifully cultivated gardens mm. yeah but particularly in cranbourne in the last six years there's been an increase in like in the conservation focus yeah definitely of species yeah and we're look we're keen to um get outside the gates as well you know i think i think we have an opportunity bringing a whole bunch of species into cultivation um especially from victoria and the southeast that haven't been grown before to potentially get these out into to landscapes so we we've you know we talk to landscape designers and i mean the guys at dandenong are growing a whole bunch of rain threatened stuff like a lot of the subalpine trees and and shrubs and things like that we're we're looking to broaden that reach and you know educate people about um, plants and how to cultivate them and and the plight of a lot of these species so yeah just going back to king's park is it (laughs) there's a section in there i love it it is one of my favorite botanic gardens in the world it's just stunning Mm. 
but they have all their garden beds or garden areas are split up into the different regions of WA, the Pilbara, Kimberley, Southwest, whatever, Wheat Belt, all that. And then they've got this section that's Eastern Australia <laughs> and it's like from the border... Yeah. All east, and that's it. And it's about it's five like square Australia. meters as well. Yeah, it's yeah. Tiny. <laughs> says a lot about West Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, and yeah, for you guys to aiming to be, you know, the Kings Park and showcasing what's in Victoria, like that's mm. just awesome. Yeah. yeah, and it's fun as yeah. well. You know, growing a whole bunch of things we've we've never seen or grown before is, mm. is good fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the Hort team that you guys have down at Cranbourne at the moment. Well, I mean, I'm pretty biased, so I, I, I mean, it's well and truly the best team I've worked with, and and I think, um, you know, I, I guess because we're all working towards a common goal, um, so, you know, the the individual horticulturists horticulturists are um, curating their own areas, so they kind of become the specialist in in Mallee vegetation or or cool temperate or warm temperate or um, alpine species and that sort of stuff. So all, all of the um, the guys and gals at, at Cranny are building networks outside of the botanic gardens and, you know, heading up. I mean, we've got a Grampians garden, for example, and we've been working closely with Wilma, which is a, an endemic sort of um, arts and garden precinct, um, doing a whole bunch of conservation work up there. So that's headed up by a couple of the horticulturalists. So uh, it's a very sort of multi-dimensional job being a horticulturalist at the gardens because it's not just being a gardener, it's about... Um, you know, linking up and networking with a whole bunch of people and really becoming a specialist in that in that area. So, yeah, it's a great team. Mm. It's a great team. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Um, thank you very much, Russ. No worries. Welcome to the Free 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 Gardening hump. Show. Yeah. 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 You can wipe the sweat off your brain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is good, though, like the raising rarity plants because I've gone to this plant sale and I get a lot of them from there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and definitely. there's, like, some species that do really, really well. Yeah. I really like using, like, all the... Um, Veronica Nivias. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. They and are. they just sweep the ground yeah. and you get these beautiful flowers, kind of like a bit of white, a bit of purple. Yeah. There's some really that, good stuff. And that um, species doesn't look out of place in like a little no, cottage garden that's right. or an exotic garden or whatever. So, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of what we're trying to do, they, select yeah. species that people won't freak out about because they're native. Yeah. They, they, we might even slip them through because people don't know they're native sometimes. Yeah. There's, there's sometimes a stigma attached to native well, plants. That's, so. what, that's what I'm all about is like, trying to show it as that these plants are so beautiful yeah and they are beautiful yeah and use them in a certain way that looks after obviously selections of plants yeah for the wildlife the insects yeah exactly and show people yeah. what you have because a lot of people do have a stigma of Aussie, Aussie yeah. gardens mm. yeah. like prickly dry mm. yeah which is mm. a funny one yeah it's it? very funny yeah. and we've yeah. got like you can we I always say like, I'll make your meadow garden yeah you've yeah. got you know veronicas and yeah fracascombs yeah, and all yeah, the exactly. rest gorillas, everything yeah. Yeah. and you can you yeah get it. And I think so um, we've been linking up, uh, you know, I mean, we've tried to, chatted about it in the past, but trying to link up with landscape designers and urban yeah. planners and all of that sort yeah. of stuff to get some of these species into these landscapes. Yeah. So people are exposed to them and they go, oh, actually, that's yeah. really pretty or, yeah. you know, contribute to, to broader collections of mm -hmm. these species and, and even learn how to grow them. You know, in, mm. we have a, a very kind of restricted niche that we grow them in we mm. grow them in the gardens and we've got sort of research plots but if people are growing them in their home gardens or growing them in large-scale landscapes you can get a read on how that's they're right. going to perform over time and that yeah. sort of stuff so that's um yeah i always take them home first because we've got that other place and i just grow them there and see how they go yeah yeah and then i'm like 
right, you're in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're That's the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> you propagated on that scale. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we have a, a philosophy that you've got to be rare and pretty. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're, we're yeah. really superficial. You oh, know, God. Potentially not going to win any friends with a salt yeah. bush. Yeah. I was at the Victorian Biodiversity <laughs> Conference this week and they had a panel discussion on the not so cute and fluffy. They were all focused on animals, unfortunately. There's yeah. no plant representation. Mm. But it's, it's the same in plant and animals is that conservation happens to the cute things. Oh, no. yeah. Koalas are a perfect example of that. Yeah. And the pretty plants we're interested in mm. in conserving, but the ugly ones just get pushed to the wall. Change your perceptions. Like look yeah. at a snake next time and look at those cute little eyes. <laughs> <laughs> or like just change I don't know. It's like, you know, you have such an anger towards weeds. And I remember what was that plant? There was oh god, I can't remember. There was a plant that was on the farm. It was like a little it's like a little salt bush. He used to annoy me as a kid, and Dad was always like, it's a weed, it's a weed. <laughs> Kill it. You know, he's a farmer. Kill it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, now I found out that it was like a, a local salt bush. Like a, I can't remember what it was. It was Brigadia. I don't think so. But it's a native. And now all of a sudden, because I know that, I'm like, oh, it's quite nice. You know, yeah. we change mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Change perception. Very true. I always help the gaining appreciation of like what the plant has gone through or mm. the mechanisms it's sort of developed to survive in mm. a cracked soil or yeah. in a really boggy spot or something mm-hmm. yeah. you gain an appreciation of it and then you start to care for it a little bit more i don't know that's it yeah well it's like a relationship with it when you understand anything and a little bit more of that complexity then you hear a story and you're like oh that is beautiful that is special mm. yeah. yeah one of your favorite gardens of mine em mm. and that is using native plants in different contexts is the japanese style oh. garden that you did it was a while ago now yeah 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 She's very smart, this girl. No, yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Japanese-style aesthetic yeah. with mainly natives. I'd, I'd love to come and have a look, actually. Yeah. Because I have... Wouldn't um, we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. yeah. I mean, we haven't been invited yet. But no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no just, I, we're looking after that place for five years, actually. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, and we use, like, all the native ferns as well, all the violas, mm. Liberdia paniculata, um, but we yeah. did like bring in a few little things. Like we um, went to Conifer Gardens Nursery, and you get like these little dwarf pines. Yeah. Mm. And then they grow like ten centimeters every ten years or whatever. Yeah. So it's like this really lovely sort of stable environment. But you know the violas, all like we got polystichum proliferum. Yeah, nice. Um, Terrace chamula, all yeah. those sort of ferns. Like you mix all those through. Yeah. Um, it's just it's exciting, and we put. Oh, we should actually put some glycine in there. I don't know. As you talk, you're like, oh, I should put more stuff. Yeah. Describe glycine for people. That oh, don't sorry. Know. Um, twining glycine is a beautiful, dainty little, I guess, little vine with little um, purple pea flowers, and they're beautiful, like very, very delicate, mm. very feminine. It's probably a little bit small. It's the sort of thing because I'm when I see gardens, I get really like into sort of the finer details. So you know, like. I always say, like, those big manicured gardens always photograph well and everyone always goes for them. And, unfortunately, native gardens, because it's so delicate and you're looking in, it's so complex. Yeah. Like, you see the flowers are smaller, but you can't actually capture the flowers. But when you're there, you're like, this is stunning, right? So true. Mm. It's like that, like, I feel like glycine's like that. If you took a photo, it would do nothing. If you see it in life, you're like, that's a stunner. Mm-hmm. Like, it's beautiful. But, yeah, that's what I always say about Australian gardens. I'm, like, trying to get to that point where I'm like, how can we photograph it the perfect way so everyone can see that? But you have to be in them as well, yeah. I feel. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. I think um, 
that that's a way of breaking down the stigma, like producing gardens like a Japanese garden mm. using Australian plants. Mm-hmm. People go, oh, okay, so they're a bit more diverse and, yeah. and possibly usable mm. than they thought. So, um, I mean, this is on air, but I've got a grand plan, hopefully one day to at, at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens to do Gardens of the World using native plants. So, yeah. Japanese yeah. garden, yep. French partier, California rock garden, that that kind of vibe, yep. English cottage. Um, Where are you going to do that? In the middle of the Red Sand look, Garden? I haven't told anyone. Yeah. I'll help you. Yeah, I better clear it with... Um, yeah, we I'll should. Because yeah. I always say, I go, if there's a plant that's exotic, there is a native alternative Definitely. every time. Yeah, yep. totally And agree. it's just finding it, and it's so exciting at the moment because we are still discovering them yeah. all. Yeah, and, and And it's we just don't have that database to be able to show it. Like, yep. it's just, it's all there. Yeah. And I'm constantly trying to figure it all out. Yeah, an Australian plant growing and breeding is oh. so young as far as white people are concerned. Yeah. It is yeah. so yeah. young. It's so young. Whereas it's so exciting. It's, it, I mean, it's what the 60s really is the birth of Australian plant breeding mm. with corries and paws and that sort of stuff. But beyond that, you know, there's, um, I mean, a, a bit of work on some of the herbaceous stuff, the brachys and scavolas and, and things like that. But there, we, we see it as an opportunity at the gardens to be able to get involved in some of this selection and breeding. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it's... Um, the, the thing is, everybody wants to put these plants in their landscapes. Mm. There's just no access to them at the moment. And, so. the, yeah. and the numbers of them too that we often, yeah, exactly. that we often need. You yeah. know, mm. if you go, you know, if you're a horticulturist or landscaper, you know, you go into the production nurseries or plant mark, plant multi, the trade nurseries, you yep. need things on large numbers. And if these plants aren't available and you just don't use them so it's like a supply yeah. and demand yeah yeah definitely issue. yeah and it's always it, it's always got to be a couple of years out you know in the, in the planning stage if you're looking to put together your prop list or whatever um you know you can't ring someone two months from from time where you got to put them in the ground and hope that you're going to get that that suite of species so yeah. it, I, I think a lot of it is in the planning and understanding like whoever you're doing that work for that that that's what you need to do <laughs> Uh, it is hard. It's hard to do that with budgets and things like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, like yeah, a, a, it, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah, instant gratification is kind of how we yeah, how we tend to to do our planning yeah. and things like that. So that's yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a hard thing to yeah. to, uh, to it's a hurdle to jump. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. hard in design too. Like you would if there's like plants that I go to that sale because I'm like grab them all I can. Yeah. You yeah. probably hate me for it because I'm like taking <laughs> everything. <laughs> but the yeah. thing is, I can't like go a year before because things just change a lot and I can't just be like I need X amount of this X amount of that and then all of a sudden I can't get the build done in that time and then all those plants you've put together are gone like I just that's but I have actually spoken to a few people I've gone to the gardens before and you've had plants in behind and been able to give it to me yeah yeah besides the sales but yeah it is hard to plan unless you've got like that really organized project yeah you're yeah, like definitely. yes 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 yeah, some okay. of those huge yeah. huge yeah. projects like the urban project but you, you know what do some of that stuff but. i don't i can't like i like urban projects and that but i really love those little residential ones because i think they're definitely. the changes yeah it's like everyone has all these big budgets and big 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 projects it's like no what about just the normal person yeah yeah that's why yeah, i'm absolutely. a bit like oh, yeah. i really trying to get them in yeah. there for normal people yeah and that's why we love those sales because it it attracts a whole bunch of home gardeners you know who just want something different and new like they're they're dying for it yeah and it is new yeah can you remind me i've got this alpine brachyscome it's got little succulent leaves yeah tagelia it's tagelia i was like it has two eyes at the end yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's a really good one which that's that's actually something we've been working on um 
and selecting because yeah. they have a whole range of um, flower sizes, flowering mm. times, leaf types. And leaf types, um, yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. wild. You can get five brachies. I've like, got three. With different, different yeah. leaves. Yeah. I've got three different types. One yeah. with a larger flower, one with smaller, and one with like weird little leaves. Yeah, thinner. yeah. Really They're great. They're almost divided. And, yeah. yeah. It's so good. Yeah. And then you just pluck a little bit out and if you pop it in, it'll spread yeah. on the ground as well. It's a really lovely one, Chloe. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's really cool. Oh, all right. I'll add it to my list of plants to put in my garden. <laughs> yeah, I think you need to. It's a growing yeah. list. It's a really yeah, good yeah, one. Yeah. I like it because, yeah, it kind of runs and you get that mass and it's just the yeah. native garden. And they're, yeah. they're actually really good for some of those wet spots in the garden as well. Yeah. So, so they occur in kind of these um, really moist, almost... Um, not peatlands, but it's kind of swampy areas mm. in the Alps. Um, so, yeah, they're happy being inundated through. Yeah, um, I notice they don't like dry. They, they won't. do not. They won't. They yeah. have to be sort of in a, a wetter, lower-lying yeah. area. Yeah, Sheltered. Definitely. They love the dandenongs. Yeah. Love the dandenongs. Yeah. For pe- we have mentioned this particular plant sale a few times already. <laughs> For people that don't know, we're talking about the, cr- the growing friends mm. Of the Friends of Cranbourne Botanic Garden have a plant sale three times a year? Yeah, yeah three times. The next yep. plant sale that's coming up is the 23rd and 24th of March and a lot of these oh. put in your diary in. No, i got the garden show. Oh. Yeah. I mean, not that it's a bad thing, but I just <laughs> yeah, like to go to. Is that the same weekend as the Flowering Garden yeah, Show? Yeah, mm. it is. That's a bit of a, you have to, next week. Oh, no, yeah. then that's Easter. The weekend after. Come on, Russ. We'll we'll do one next year at some point. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, if you can't be bothered battling the crowds at the Flowering Garden Show, go down to Cranbourne. The Growing Friends have their plant sale on the 23rd. Or if you're not committed to be there the whole time at the Flowering Garden Show, you can probably do both in a weekend. Amen, sister. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I'm being selfish. It's just me. Damn it. I was was reading, because I have nothing better to do at the moment, I was reading about plants that suit boggy, moist soils, Mm -hmm. and I was reading through the Elliot and Jones encyclopedias. (laughs) Looking at Crinum pedunculatum, mm, and yeah. the next species on the list is called Crinum pestilentis. Oh. Uh. And, I, and I put this photo on my Instagram, and I just want to share it. The last two sentences are a description of the scent of the flowers. The flowers give off a very strong, sickening odour towards dusk and have been reported to cause vomiting. Oh. Not recommended for cultivation for this reason. Oh. <laughs> What a wrap-up. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so that plant's never going to make it into cultivation. Aww. Is it got a beautiful white flower? Like, what is it? There's no there's no photos of it, but um, you can read the description later and um, and get a visual. There's a lot of sickening plants, like ornamental pears, that I don't like the smell of either. Mm. Yeah, and they use that en masse. And ginkgos and macadamia trees. You don't Do like they? the smell of macadamia? Is it macadamia? I think it's got a flower that kind of stinks. I don't mind the smell. It's oh. probably like a strong honey smell. Oh, the one that we got at home really stinks, like ornamental pear. <laughs> well, you got some bad genetics in yours or something. <laughs> it's a really But, yeah, one. I think we need to, like, bring this crinum into cultivation because yeah. it's being shunted it's a, at the it's moment. It's a selling point, and I they're, think. They're so we've got a, a morphophallus. I mean, yes. we, we go crazy for it, mm. for the rotting corpse yeah. smell. This yeah. might yeah. be a plant that will bring yeah, 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 thousands yeah. into Cranbourne Gardens for its stink, like the Titan lily yeah. does could, at could Melbourne. Be. I, I think maybe we should have a crack in, in Dandenong, possibly, <laughs> first, and just see how it goes. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That'll bring people in. Let's <laughs> right. try to find some seed. It's in It's in Queensland. What yeah. was it? Crinum? Pestilentis. Pestilentis. The species name has got something to do with the ill-smelling flowers. <laughs> Yeah, it is a what? Okay. Hmm. All right, guys. While we are talking <laughs> pests, 
Uh, we do have a special caller on the line. Um, Brett Summerall is calling in from Sydney. He is uh, a the plant a plant pathologist and chief scientist at Sydney Botanic Gardens. So, like, we've pulled in a big gun today. Brett, good morning. Morning, Chloe. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining the show today. My pleasure. Um, I uh, I sent you a message and said we've had a few listeners call in and text in, particularly last week, but in the last few months, asking about harlequin beetle numbers and infestations in their garden. Um, so since you're pretty good with plant pests and diseases, particularly diseases, um, I thought we'd ask you if you could come on and chat sure. to us. Yes, so, my pleasure. Have you had numbers, have you had infestation numbers of the harlequin bugs up in Sydney like we have in Melbourne? Not so much, and it's interesting. It's one of these curses of, of common names. So sort of Sydney north, we tend to have the cotton harlequin bug, which is a, a really bright, shiny um, beetle in the same, uh, bug in the same family that tends to hit, hit our hibiscus and, you know, it's on a, a range of different malvaceae. And then as you go further south, you get into the, the true harlequin bug, um, Dindimus, uh, is the generic name, and it it's, it's tends to come in more swarming numbers. So we don't tend to see it so much up in Sydney, but I know certainly as you get into the, the mountains and the southern highlands and then further south, you do see it on, on lots of different species. Yeah. And are there certain... Can, like, people are wondering, like, why there's so many... Like, the numbers are so huge at the moment. Are there certain conditions that lead to their, their numbers rising like they have? Yeah, certainly, and I think probably is... Um, you know, over the summer we've had, particularly in, in the south of the country, we've had periods where we've had reasonable weather and it hasn't been too extreme in terms of temperature. So they do like that moderate temperatures. They do like the fact that it's it's wetter and, and um, more moist. And certainly what they really do love is the having a broad range of, of weed species, particularly things like mallows and other plants in the, in the family Malvaceae that are continuing to grow and, and to, to reproduce. So I think probably what you'll find is that numbers really built up big um, in the early part of the season, particularly because there was plenty of mallow around, and then they've got moved onto, onto a, a range of different species. And it's quite amazing the, the host range of, of this insect is really, really broad. You know, you go from... Um, it's a big problem in, in fruit trees and apples and, and um, a whole lot of the stone fruits. But also when you get into strawberries and veggies and a range of different ornamentals, it, there's so many things it can feed on. So it's, as, if the conditions are right, it'll build up in numbers really fast and really big. <clears throat> so it's usually that wet weather and moderate temperatures. I always bang on to, to students about favourable conditions in classes and it can be favourable conditions in a, over a week or in you know the months and seasons leading up to it. Absolutely, and we always, you know, in, in plant pathology and, and plant pest circles, we always talk about the disease triangle or the pest triangle being favourable. So you have to have the right environmental conditions. You have to have a good host range for it to to to, um, to come on, and then you obviously have to have the pest or the pathogen. So in this case, I think we've got all of the things that are needed for the for the the pest to really build up in big numbers, and and that's why we're we're seeing this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's it's one of those um, bugs that can really build up quickly. Um, it's closely related to our least favourite um, pest, I think, with the bronze orange bug, and it's mm -hmm. as difficult to control as that is. The bronze orange bug. Have, have you guys seen that before? I have not seen. Uh, 
I think on citrus. Yeah. On citrus, okay. Oh, yeah. We had Brett, we had a listener last week that called <clears> up, <throat> and I think she said the harlequins were getting stuck into the fruit of her persimmon. I think it was. Yes, um, yes, it would do anything in that sort of broad family. Those those broad range of species, they'll they really get stuck into it. And while they don't do necessarily do too much individually, do too much damage. Damage. They've they've got this little proboscis um, that they. So they're um, sap feeders. They'll, they'll um, cause minor damage, but you know, in a fruit crops or strawberry crops or things like that, they can cause really a lot of damage because you get lots and lots and lots of pinpricks all over. Mm. Introduces um, rotting organisms into the fruit, and that can really cause um, problems in, the, in terms of productivity and also in the quality of the fruit. Yeah. And another insect that we've seen in really large numbers, literally in the last week, and it was last Sunday that the numbers just absolutely skyrocketed in Melbourne, was the cabbage white butterfly. Have you had numbers skyrocket up there this week? Uh, we've had um, really high numbers and lots of people complaining about them um, pretty much for the whole of, whole of the summer. I've never seen a season like um, this one for cabbage white butterfly. Wow. Mm. Um, yeah, I know, and I noticed... Um, Tim Antwistle posted a video from RBG Melbourne mm. um, last week where with lots of lots of cabbage white butterflies um, flying over. So yeah, we've seen lots of them. They're really, I mean, the Sydney gardens they're really big in the meadow um, mm. garden at the moment. They've, they're really loving all the different species that they have. And again, it's a case of uh, everything's been favourable for them to to be able to to reproduce, build up in big numbers, and then have multiple cycles over the the, sum, the spring, summer and, and probably into the autumn period so is and it, causing quite a lot of damage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is it that sort of wet weather and moderate temperature ranges as well that, that they prefer, like the harlequins? Yeah, it is. It's very much the case. Um, they'll, they'll, they, they do require to get to a certain temperature before the, the eggs and the larvae can reproduce, but if you've got those mild, you know, relatively mild conditions, continual wet weather, continual host range... Um, the unusual thing that we're seeing, particularly in Sydney, is um, having multiple um, life cycles this year rather than just the one. So you're getting a couple of life cycles because conditions have been so good for them. Absolutely fascinating. Didn't you guys have a question for Brett Riley's on the line? Yeah, well, I was just thinking about that. I remember commenting last this time last year about the, the cabbage white butterfly. So I, I, I presume we're having multiple good seasons in a row so so you you, you just con- compounding the amount of them as well but i guess yeah. what a lot of the listeners <laughs> are probably interested in will be you know obviously if they are there is damage things like that is there specific things they can do and obviously we're none of us here on the panel are going to be uh, advocating for broad scale kind of uh, insecticide use on these <laughs> these kind of things but but is there is there any sort of control measures that, that that people should have in mind? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and certainly you know I'm I'm dead against the particularly in, the, in your home garden uh, about using any of the conventional pesticides. Yep. So it really is about making sure that um, you try and get on top of these things at the beginning of the season, which is probably not really what, what people want to hear. But it's really starting to think about next season about weed control, making sure that any of the alternative hosts are. Are um, you know so things like um, harlequin bugs? That's really about controlling your mallows and those sorts of things. Um, you know, in some of these cases, you know, the old crude and tried um, oils and, and um, soapy water type mm. scenarios can can help. But 
even with things like cabbage white butterfly, once you problem is once you notice that and see the butterflies around, um, it, it really is probably in that case too late, and it's really about making sure you get things in right, mm. things right for the next season. I was telling these guys about how during lockdown I was at my parents' farm and I was, the harlequin beetles are really bad there, and I was I actually it was I was telling them it was the mallow as well, and um, <clears throat> I was just saying how I would just have a dish of soapy warm water it was the only way that you could literally control them i'd just be scooping them up and getting rid of them because i just couldn't stand them anymore but i was like i was observing around just trying to see if anyone or anything actually eats them and i was sitting there for ages thinking there must be something that predates on these things did a little bit of research i couldn't really find anything i know they're horrible to taste do you know if there is anything that eats them i've never actually observed anything eating Mm. any of the there, there must be. There clearly must be mm-hmm. for um, uh, for all of the all of the stink bug family um, and the jewel family, jewel bug family. They 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 do seem to be oblivious to most of what we would consider to be the the standard sort of pre, um, predators. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like you, I've I've observed and watched, and, yeah. and very rarely do I see anything that's making a meal out of them. Yeah, it, I think it's a tough bird that can can swallow those things. I agree. I mean, you can kind of smell them. I know desperate. they're toxic. <laughs> somewhat desperate, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we'll have to keep watching. <laughs> and, and Brett, and, uh, and another unlisted question that I didn't mention in my message to you, um, more so in your ballpark, um, myrtle rust fungal disease. Russell, mm. you've been dealing with it a lot at Cranbourne yeah, or it's sort have. of been on the on the watch out. Um, Brett, c- control and, and observation points for people to look out for metal rust? Uh, yeah, look, it's really interesting. So, so control, control, there are a couple of um, fungicides that um, we use. I think we've got three fungicides now that we're ra- in a rotation around, um, particularly because we're trying to build up um, meta collections of, of several of the species that are, are particularly being hammered in the bush by, by metal rust. So there are a, a few a few um, fungicides. I can't remember. They're off the top of my top of my head. But I'm more than happy to provide that information afterwards. But um, certainly, we're really interested in in um, observations for for myrtle rust. Um, there's a number of programs, and we're about to put one up on iNaturalist um, to to try and get more information about where myrtle rust is spreading to. Um, what species it's attacking. We're mm. really interested in in situations where something that might have been perceived to have been re- resistance in the past all of a sudden gets starts to get hammered by myrtle rust. It's been a good season, obviously, for it this year. Um, so, yeah, those are, the, those are the things. And people, if people can be on the lookout um, for, for any signs of myrtle rust, extensions of ranges into areas where we haven't observed it before or species that we haven't seen it on. And, and really it's about looking for those bright yellow um, pustules of, of fungal growth on the on the leaves of the, particularly of the new growth and when they're f- the the um, species are flowering. So we're looking for things on things like lily pillies on some of the uh, rainforest myrtles and a, and a range of different species. Yeah, we're we're. Do- I was just going to say we're doing a lot of reporting for the department about where we're finding it as well. Um, yeah, and we it, it absolutely took off last year for us. So it was observed on probably 10 to 12 species that we'd never seen it on before. And interestingly, it was occurring on old growth, so we'd only ever seen it um, on the on the new growth and the new flower buds and that sort of stuff. But on uh, things like Bacchiaia citrigodora, it was mm. back right back in on 
second, third year growth, which Dang. is interesting. So it's obviously been sitting there waiting for those conditions and then and then kind of exploded. But um, yeah, we're, I, I think there's also some hosts that, you know, almost we're thinking about removing like a Gonus flexuosa and, That's you, a bad you know, one especially the dwarf variety. Mm-hmm. Um, that just yeah. seems to be a magnet for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you want it and you're into fungi, put that in your garden. But mm-hmm. um, I, had, I yeah. had a Gonus flexuosa dwarf in my garden and I got metal rust yeah. on it really? in East Ringwood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they get hammered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just a beacon for them. And, and then it's a source of infection for everything else. So if, as far as if people do see it in their garden and, and up, up in Sydney too, Brett, for, for Sydney listeners, uh, how can people report it so that you guys know about it and the departments know about it? Uh, look, there's the, the best thing is to um, put it on iNaturalist. So yeah. iNaturalist is a, a uh, an app and a website where people can report biodiversity observations. <laughs> and um, Alyssa Martino has put, who's a PhD student at University of Sydney, has put together a, a, a little project within iNaturalist. You can find it on Myrtle, Myrtle Rust. Um, where we're putting in observations and, and the like. So it's just one place to collate all of that information so that we do start to see those extensions of ranges, when it's appearing, what the conditions are, but also really, um, as you said, it's really about trying to understand what the host range is. What we're really super concerned about is we only have one strain of myrtle rust, the pan- yeah. what we call the pandemic strain at the moment, <laughs> and we're really worried about if we get some of the strains from Brazil or from South Africa mm-hmm. come into the country uh, and that's why we need to know about those sort of changes in disease severity and changes in host range. All right. And, and Brett, just one more question. Um, uh, we read recently that there was um, potentially a way to um, inoculate your plants in the future using, like, micro RNA. Um, mm. Do you... Could you shed some light on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting work that's happened out of the University of Queensland, um, and what that does, what it's presumed to do, and it seems to work, it's um, the, the PhD student, uh, Rebecca, who was working on it, has done a fantastic job and, and some of that stuff has already been published. Yeah. And what it does is it'll, it helps to elicit defence responses within the plant so that it's able to stop those early stages of infection. So um, there's still a long way to go with this, but it seems to be a really interesting way for a whole range of different diseases yeah. um, that might work across a broad range of crops so it's, um, and, and host plants. So it it's really offers some, um, some um, interesting benefits there. We're trying to look to see if we can... There's a new, new batch of funding coming out from the federal government, so we're hoping to see if we can get funding yeah. to uh, um, expand on that project so that we can look at it, how it might work with... Uh, different genotypes of, of affected species, where there's variability within those, and, and yep. how it might work with some of the other conventional methods of control. Yeah, that'd be amazing. That's, yeah. that's, that's fantastic. Really cool. And yeah, I mean, that sounds like that is really high level science, mm-hmm. but that will, the trickle down effects, you know, into our gardens uh, and the plants that we grow, that's really exciting research, mm-hmm. Brett. Uh, mm. Before we let you go, I must say a huge congratulations on your recent. Medal of the Order of Australia. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to read it out so listeners know. It was for services to the environment through plant pathology and mycology and what you just listed um, with the research you guys are doing. You're still doing that work. So Mm. thank you for joining the show. Thank you for all your work. um, And um, thanks for coming on this morning and sharing that information with us. My pleasure. Anytime. Enjoy your day. Thanks, Thanks, Brett. See you later. Thanks, Bye-bye. 
You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We just had um, Associate Professor Brett Summerall from the Sydney Botanic Gardens chatting to us about some pesty problems, harlequin bugs, cabbage white butterfly and myrtle rust. Um, If you missed the start of that uh, uh, interview, you can uh, listen, go back and listen to our podcast when that goes up on all your podcast apps. I'm Chloe Foster and in the studio with me this morning, I have Tex Moon, Russell Lark, and Emmeline Bowman. I must open the phone line. Sorry, I've um, been holding out on everyone, but uh, we, we had Brett coming in. If you want to give us a call, any questions or any comments, uh, the number is 94190155. The text line is open as well, and that is 0488 I will remind listeners that starting tomorrow is... Subscribe a week at 3CR. This station runs on the smell of an oily rag and it runs on the support of all its listeners. Uh, If you can support the station to keep it running and keep all the variety of shows on air, um, this is your week to do it, uh, to sign up. Jump onto the 3cr.org.au website and there's some really simple links that you can follow to do that or call the station during business hours, which the number for that is 94198377. Okay, guys, Mm. we were talking about a number of different brachyscombs earlier. Now, brachyscombs, um, I might be wrong, Russ, but that was sort of the start of the Raising Rarity project that Meg Hurst Mm. and a few other horticulturalists started doing quite a few years ago now. Yeah, it was. So that that was part of... um, And you've jumped on the bandwagon, let me just say. Oh, we've absolutely hijacked that project. (laughs) It was was a great one. So we Mm. saw an opportunity and, yeah, went for it. But um, Meg is a a seed ecologist um, for the Royal Botanic Gardens and her PhD work was looking at... um, basically warming experiments on alpine brachyscombs um, and on the back of that she found so much natural variation within species and and they're super pretty i mean it, anyone who knows a brachyscombe like the, the the little kind of cut leaf daisy things um yeah and she she felt there was an opportunity to be able to um potentially make them available um commercially so people could grow them in their gardens um and we in parallel were doing some work on um more shrubby species probably um a lot of the things that we're collecting and bringing in and and trialing so um it happened quite organically like that between um meg and myself and probably probably give a shout out to matthew henderson as well who um is really a uh, we call him Plant Matt, you know, and yeah. he does a lot of the, the trialling and, and collecting and that sort of stuff. So He knows every single um, plant in existence and I, it rivals Stephen Ryan. Yeah, really? Yeah. He's the rain man wow. of plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I yeah. gave him that name. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I try not to be around him too much yeah. when he's talking plants because it's embarrassing. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, it's really it's really grown from there and we're, um, you know, in the process of trialling. We've probably got close to 50 species, I think, trialling at the moment. Um, and we're looking to... Uh, hopefully in two or three years to, to release these as commercial varieties so people can get their hands on them. The, the um, ones that are available in the Growing Friends plant sales, is that they're, they're part of the Raising Rarity program no, or just care for the rare? They're, they're not. So they're, um, we've had some kind of standalone sales mm. um, which we, we promoted so people came. We, we basically wanted to see if there was a market for rare plants. Um, and interestingly, we attracted a whole new demographic of people, a lot of younger people, a lot of landscape designers, um, a lot of people working for council who wanted to, you know, have a look at what was potentially available. So, um, and there, there was, we had two or three pilot sales and they were really successful. So, that 
um, yeah, the friends are still growing all sorts of stuff from the Australian garden. So you're going to get a whole bunch of species that you, you just can't find in cultivation because they collect and yeah. and grow stuff from the from the AG. So um, yeah, bo- both of them sort of complement each other in a way. Like we have much reduced suite of species compared to the friends. They'll have you know yeah. hundreds of species, and mm. we'll we'll be sort of working on maybe five or or ten at the very most um, for those sales. So yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no more. You're not going to say oh, anything about that. No, no. <laughs> you can't, no, you're I, taking a breath to keep going. No, I mean, I, I can say something more about it if you like. <laughs> and then a couple of text messages <laughs> that we we'll get to. Sorry, guys. Um, a listener is messaging, can you use sea salt on natives? The answer is yes. yes. Absolutely. It's at the same concentration, um, 30 mils per 9 or 10 litres, and absolutely, even on the proteaceae, Yep. Revealia's banks is it can be a little bit more sensitive, mm. yes, to sea salt and other seaweed products. It was like a while ago I was talking about how we did that biofertilisation course. And not that I'm dissing sea salt, but sadly all those organisations have sort of made a lesser quality product. Mm. It's probably better to make your own uh, recipes. Mm. So like uh, molasses and rice with a bit of water, let it sit in a drum for a month and take the concentrate of that and pour it on it instead because yeah um yeah sea salt's not as good as it used to be we ran some for a plant nutrition unit that i teach in cert three the one of the assessments is a nutrition trial Mm. and last it's usually students for the assessment will have we just use silver beet seedlings Mm -hmm. a pot of control a control Mm -hmm. so that pot it pot has no fertilizer in it at all we just water it for the 10 weeks there's a pot of thing of plants are just given sea salt mm-hmm. or another type of seaweed fertilizer so we're not just knocking sea salt yeah. um and a pot that is given slow release osmocote fertilizer like a three to four month one yeah. last semester I had a really um, engaged group of students so i tacked one on for our own interests and that was a combination of slow release fertilizer and the seaweed solution yeah the root growth of the seaweed fertiliser was twice that of the plants, the pots that just got slow-release mm-hmm. fert. Mm. And the sea soil pots, their growth sort of goes up for the first couple of weeks mm. and then it, it properly declines. Like it's not a soul. And we, mm. we know yeah. this and I talk to people about it a lot. It is not a, f- a fertiliser no, product. It's not, no. it's not a true fertiliser. It's more of a conditioner. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It mm. strengthens plant cell walls, but it absolutely needs to be used in conjunction with um, regular fertiliser, whether it's, you know, something that's been manufactured or compost and mulch, yeah, you know, something more organic like fertiliser pellets or something. What a fun experiment. It was really fun. Oh, I'd love to do all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I never get time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, good. There's so many. Oh, I love doing <clears throat> fertiliser trials mm. uh, and that one was really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna do it again with um with my nutrition class really? this semester and see what if we get similar results. Oh, I'd love to like yeah, I'll to, send you photos. Yeah, 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 you have to keep me in the loop. <laughs> I love that stuff. I think just just quickly on um fertilization, I think it really, really depends on the conditions of your garden. So you yeah. so you may have a suite of species that you're growing in a in a loam where there's available nutrients already in the soil and you, you might not necessarily have to fertilize, you know, mm. as compared to a 
you know, a whitewash sand or something where you yeah. where you do need to fertilise little and often. Um, so I I would say get to know your garden first. You know, mm. so don't don't just feed because people say feed in spring. Mm-hmm. Yes, because um, there's a whole bunch of species that don't need that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, so mm-hmm. if you see you know the tips of your um, Grevilleas going yellow. It's probably iron, so just feed them iron. You know mm-hmm. they don't they don't need the sweet you, through over fertilising. You can actually cause other other issues. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, get get to know your plants intimately before you start fertilising. And or, and encourage people to have healthy soil Definitely. instead of relying on putting a product yep. onto it. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean that's the fundamental. Um, <coughs> like if you don't have good soils, you don't have good plants. Ninety yeah. percent of your problems are below the surface. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. You are tuned into this morning. Another text message uh, to get through from a very organised listener. Um, Cheryl in Bitten is has asked about the best time to lift and divide daylilies. I would do it now. Um, I don't uh, post flowering. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there'd be anything. I think early spring before flowering or now. Um, I know there's probably other. Uh, hosts that, that are from the 3CR show listening that would probably have a better idea of daylilies <laughs> than I would, but uh, but yeah, I would. They're pretty tough. I would I would do it now and and uh, see how it goes. But they're very very tough plants. Mm. Yeah. yeah, probably so long as the weather's warm, yeah. and they can settle into their new spot. Yep. Yep. All right. It's not Thanks like it's harsh conditions right now. No, exactly. No, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, fine. yeah, warm and. Warm and moist and get onto it. Yeah. All right, we must get to some community announcements. Lucky for those people that sleep in, you don't miss the community announcements this morning. Okay, where are we going to start? The Viewfield Garden in Mount Macedon uh, have released their um, save the dates for their open garden uh, in open garden dates for 2024 so they're open all easter weekend and every saturday and sunday in april including anzac day on the thursday it's a beautiful historic landscape 10 acres um take a picnic wander around the garden Uh, dogs are allowed to and enjoy a day up around the mount macedon ranges so that is viewfield garden you can get more information on their instagram and it's mount underscore macedon underscore viewfield for that the state dahlia show is on for 2024 on the 24th and 25th of february Uh, saturday the opening times are 1 till 5 p.m and sunday it is 10 a.m till 3 30 p.m Admission is $5, concession card is $2. There's dahlia displays, potted dahlias for sale, a photography competition and demonstrations as well with a few other uh, competitions. That's happening in Mount Waverley Community Centre at 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley, which is opposite the railway station there. And I've just got to open up my other email. This is going really slow. The Fernie Creek Horticulture Society have their Plant Collectors Expo on the 9th and 10th of March. Now, our 3CR listeners are very lucky. We have two double passes for the Sunday of the show to give away today. So if you call, it's first in best dressed. Call Burn and Tom, our producers. They're waiting for your call. 
94190155 if you would like to snap up one of those double passes. And just a reminder that is for the Sunday of the show, which is the 10th of March. Sorry, Chloe, I've just got to duck out and make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good, very good. Um, one last one. Uh, the Friends of Burnley Gardens have their Valentine's Day dinner uh, on this Wednesday, Wednesday on the 14th of February uh, in their Herb and Sunken Gardens at Burnley Gardens. And after dinner, uh, be joined by renowned horticulturalist and one of our panel members of the gardening show, Stephen Wells, is going to do a talk uh, updating everyone on his work at the Austin and Royal Talbot Hospitals. If you want more information for that, email the Friends of Burnley Gardens uh, or contact 3CR if uh, our sorry contact our email if you want us to forward any details. Our email is 3cr.gardening at gmail.com. That's the community cool. announcements. Oh. It's 8.30. The phone number is 94190155 if you have a question for us. And we do have a listener waiting to chat to us already. Michael in Bacchus Marsh, good morning. G'day, guys. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you good, going? Thanks, Michael. Good, good. My question's around garden irrigation. Mm. Um, our soil here, I'd say, is in between uh, a loam and a clay, so it's not too heavy, um, but it's got a bit of structure to it. Mm. Um, I've been... Michael, we lost you. If I Call back. Michael, please call back. There's still plenty of time. Um, I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, let's get to a couple of other text messages and hopefully he calls back soon. That was sudden. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bill from uh, Pasco Vale is asking... Fungus eating, he has observed fungus eating ladybugs on his zucchinis. Hasn't noticed it for over 20 years in the same garden. Is this good, bad, or indifferent? Never seen that. In the, in the yellow, the, I'm thinking it might be the yellow ladybugs. Yeah. yeah well, mm. If we've had warm, wet weather lately and there's a bit of powdery mildew occurring, particularly on um, your zucchinis and, and pumpkins. Uh, then you usually see the the yellow ladybugs or the fungus eating ones, it, which is a good thing. Is it? I, I haven't yeah. grown enough veggies. I'm always up in the garden, yeah. so it's interesting. No, if you have a closer look, Bill, you should be able to see some a larvae of them as well. Yeah. They're a little black and yellow squiggly insect. Yeah. Do not look nothing, like a ladybug. No, nothing just like a ladybug or a larvae. So it is a good thing. Um, Ladybugs are good. Yeah. In general, just great for pest control. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you do want to minimise the uh, powdery mildew effects, prune off some of the foliage mm. of the zucchini plants, and the same for pumpkins and other yeah. curcubits as well, to open up a bit of airflow for the yeah. plant. And is the milk thing a real thing? Yes, it's because I got my one of my clients had had it on their Eleocarpus, and I said to her, put some milk on it, and I go, you know, it's supposed to help. Gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Milk. You, you I don't need know why though. Full cream and like a one to ten yeah. ratio. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And water. it worked a treat. Yeah. Don't it, use soy. Don't use <laughs> no. Milk. Yeah, don't cow. Soy. Milk. Yeah. 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 Cow's milk. <laughs> yeah. Macadamia. Yeah. So, no, yes. Yeah. 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 The plants is not vegan. They're not lactose intolerant. They aren't. Okay. We're going to try Michael again. Michael, are you there? Hey, guys. Sorry about that. That's all right. Keep going. Welcome back. 
<laughs> so I've got two garden beds. Um, we bought a property here recently, and I'm just re-establishing them. Um, our soils, uh, I would say, uh, in between us, you know, uh, a loam and a clay. So they're not they're not too heavy, but they've got a bit of structure to them. Mm. Um, basically, what I've done is on one of the one of the beds. So both the beds are about forty square meters. Um, I've brought in some sandy loam and put about um, two hundred mils to complement the soil, and there's hammer mill mulch throughout. Um, they're predominantly um, planted with protaceae, so you know Banksia waratah, a couple of protea. I suppose my, my question was, um, I'm running a a drip line between the soil and the mulch and haven't had a great deal of experience with them in the past. So a couple of questions around, you know, advice around frequency of watering, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to harden them off, you know, over the summer into the autumn and, and then, you know, frequency once established. So just, yeah, any sort of general advice on how to get the best out of the irrigation and not um, either underdo it or overdo it. It's been a funny one this year because, um, you know, obviously it has been wet. And we have found that a lot of gardens that we've done, if they did have any drip irrigation, if the clients weren't aware of, you know, turning it right off when it starts to rain, then obviously we're getting inundated with water. And if you have introduced a sandy loam and you haven't, have you turned the soil as well? Like, yes, you, oh, so oh, good. Turn, turn the soil underneath. Yeah, so I good. Prepared it. Yeah, because sometimes um, it can, I guess, when your plants are establishing yeah. and you've got that water. Um, coming through because the root systems haven't um, progressed as much you're going to get a lot more uh, a wetter soil profile Mm. Um, I would just say that drip irrigation is good seldom like you you kind of if it's raining turn it off and I find that if it just starts to dry a little bit and you just want to get those plants through then maybe you might put it on if it's a really hot week you might put it on twice a week but it's really observing the the soil itself like you know scratch it away and see what's happening i guess it was it's it's really exciting too to actually see that we we're talking about the other day with the staff is that well while we're digging at the moment you know that the surface layer is dry and the bottom and the and the um lower mm. layer of soil is wet now mm. whereas in the past it used yeah. to be wet on top dry down the bottom so there is a bit of moisture happening in the soil it'd be really good just to check that as well because if if there is uh moisture in the bottom area where the roots are then you know you probably want to limit amount of water yeah 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 and we yeah i was gonna and the last thing is we did have a client where i said there's just too much water and i just said just stop it and we i said stop it for about three weeks and it was the best thing that happened because it did allow that little drying off period gave the plants that little bit of stress just about to hold themselves and then I was just saying, look for your um, plants. I don't know if you have any indicator plants. Like she's got a, some brachyscones and violas and things, yep. and they just started to look a little bit, a little mm, bit tired. And idea. I was like, now give it a water t- t- today, and then see how that goes. But it's very much about observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess the risk is of overwatering. Um, and you said you're growing proteaceae things. So yeah. these these things are species that are, are pretty adapted to, to dry conditions. So obviously you have to water them for establishment. But I, w- I would say um, this season there's plenty of water around for proteaceae. So for our isopogons and our grevilleas mm. and, um, you know, that the banksias, that sort of thing, um, 
like you, you really don't want to overwater them. I guess one of, one of the risks of overwatering is you rot the roots out. So yeah. when you do get a really hot day, there's not enough root system um, to, to cope with the amount of transpiration that's happening. And that's, that's when you'll see those things dying. However, if, yeah. if we do get into a, a really dry period, there's, there's a few things that you need to know when you're installing irrigation. You need to kind of understand the pressure um, that's going into your lines and also the different types of um, drip line mm-hmm. will provide um, different moisture levels. So, so there's, you know, some that um, they basically work in a reverse cone. That's kind of how they go through the soil. And, and you need to understand your pressure to understand like the spread of that moisture throughout your garden bed. So um, talk, talk to the irrigation guys, you know, where, where you're picking up your drip line about that sort of stuff and understanding how you can um, potentially do some pressure testing if you want to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the joy of um, drip irrigation, it, in comparison to overhead irrigation is you can always wet the soil up again sometimes with overhead irrigation especially through summer um you end up with hydrophobic conditions but you can directly apply moisture to the mm-hmm. soil um so yeah the the moisture and the type of drip line you're going to get are pretty important i also would like to just say at the moment that we are having like we've still got wet soil from previous rain events but it's getting warm and it's a, it's just creating a lot of fungal conditions yeah so for every listener i'd be very careful about overwatering your plants at the moment because we've had many clients losing a lot of their plants just because it's just rotting out the roots particularly i'm thinking for michael's case plants in the proteaceae family they're they're really susceptible to root rot um and phytophthora and i know um phytophthora is close to Bacchus Marsh it is over in the Brisbane Ranges National Park so it can't be too far from where you are so do one question I did have for you guys um, or a new Michael the Waratah that you've got in there is that planted near the other Proteaceae species or is it in a sort of different spot Uh, they're sort of all over the place Chloe to be honest I um, I, and to give a bit more context I um, we've only just recently bought the property Mm. um, and I'd been you know, I'd gone mad and bought a whole heap of protasia and then pretty much, you know, I planted them in the last couple of weeks. So um, they're, they're relatively new, mm-hmm. um, but there's an, there's some, you know, established, semi-established um, banksias that are about, you know, a metre and a half. Uh, and um, they're, yeah, they're, all, they're all pretty close together. They're pretty much, you know, a range of proteas, waratahs and, and banksias that are... Um, yeah. Just All relatively close in those two beds. Guys, do waratahs have a slightly higher water requirement than some of the other proteaceae? Mm, it depends. Like, again, I think like deep water levels, it likes a bit of moisture. It doesn't like to dry out. Yeah. I mean, I've I got a, a a lot of different waratahs in ground and in pots, and I've let them dry completely out in my okay. even terracotta pots, and they actually do okay. You can see a little burn on the end of the leaves, but. They're pretty good. Okay. I, yeah, it depends. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the only thing I would say is they can be susceptible to, to kind of northerlies and westerlies. Yeah, wind, so, yeah. Um, and, and naturally they grow as kind of understory in, mm. in woodlands mm. and things like that. So, you know, things like proteas and, and banksias that are kind of sand plain species that are getting pumped by the sun, that's cool. Mm. Um, but your tilopias, you need to provide a little bit of protection, yeah. especially from northwest. Um, so that, that might be a consideration, mate. Yeah, well, one of the beds is, uh, yeah, it's on the side of the house, which is, act, you know, purely north-facing. Um, yeah. And and when I say north-facing, it it's, it's basically has the house, um, you know, a, a double driveway and then the garden bed. So it, it's got, uh, you know, a brick, 
it, it's got heat coming off both the concrete and the yeah. brick. Yeah. So that was, you know, uh, part, part of the question was around establishing something relatively recently yeah. um, and then having a string of days where you've got, you know, upwards of 30 and they're in, they're in the sun from, you know, 6.30 till 7 o'clock at night pretty much. That was, does that have any other further impact on that soil and, you know, and the frequency or... Oh, just definitely. I mean, if, if you've only planted them in the last week, like you, you're going to need to water for establishment. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as we were so saying what before, does that, what does that mean, mate? In terms of for establishment, is it is it a daily water? Is it a weekly water? It would. It and, wouldn't and be. How long would it be for? Yeah, roughly? it wouldn't be a daily water. It really depends on the conditions, mate. So if you if you yeah. had a you know thirty to thirty five degree week, you'd probably water them twice um, mm. and yeah, a nice okay. deep watering but if, you, yeah. if you're having these sort of mild conditions where there's a bit of rain about you, you might not even need to water Just don't, yeah. don't turn them yeah. off and, yeah. and are we talking hundreds or are we you sort of said they're all in a similar spot because I'd be tempted I, I don't know I'm, I'm a sucker for hand watering for establishment with Same. plants, yep. you know, I just because just, yep. just you know you're getting it around that, that that root zone, you're not sort of... The immediate root zone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, so you, yeah, and, and you, I don't know, it's a it's an instant kind of uh, gratification thing where you, you, you're seeing it going in and you know exactly mm-hmm. how much you're putting on each plant. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan for hand watering, but I'm also a big fan of being married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the message I got was get the irrigation in all your <laughs> <laughs> well so I, to, I think you've got your answer then yeah. happy, yeah. happy yeah. wife happy, happy life stick <laughs> with the drip line mate <laughs> <laughs> yeah. alright all, right. all the best Michael Thanks, give Thanks, us mate. an update Appreciate and let us know how you go all the best see you around Okay, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're here till 9.15 and there's a couple of text messages to get through. Uh, listeners asking about why we used Seasol and not Power Feed for the fertiliser trials. Uh, that's a really good question. I would like to trial Seasol and Power Feed. Power mm. Feed is supposed to be a little bit more nutritious for plants. Mm. Um I can't put too much pressure on my students in the one go. <laughs> um, we're going to try the. We're going to replicate what we did last semester again this semester. But if I'm teaching nutrition again, uh, then we might trial Seasol and mm. pit it against Power Feed and see if there's if there's any difference. Interesting. Yeah, yep. it would be really interesting to the, see. The the other thing with Power Feed is there's a couple of different um, concoctions for mm. want of a better term. So there's a there's a native Power Feed which is lower in phosphorus and that sort of stuff. Um, and one more generally for, you know, your exotic gardens. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Good tidbit there, Russ. Um, Vicky and Peter from Notting Hill have messaged in. Uh, they have several Australian trees in their front garden and they've reeled off a few of them. They've got Aloxalan. They've got yep. Stenocarpus, uh, Hymenosperum, Barclia, Brainia, um, and three different grafted Brackies, mm. along with some rhododendron lockiae, oh. um, and they the, the rhododendron is flowering now. They said they reckon it generally flowers only when the daylight hours are at their longest or near to that. They've got no lawn, no nature strip grass as they've planted that out too. So the front garden and the nature strip are very well mulched and heavily planted with low shrubs and ground covers. What a visual. Thank you, yeah, guys. Yeah, I love nice. it when they message you. That was a journey, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It was, yeah. Um, a, another community announcement for the Whittlesea Garden Expo. It's on at the, on the 2nd and 3rd of March, and that's the only detail that I have 
for that. Um, if the, the listener that has more Whittlesea Garden Expo info, if you could send us an email at 3cr.gardening at gmail.com, uh, we can put up more information for you. Uh, we have another listener on the line, a Roger from Berwick. Good morning. Good morning, Chloe. Roger Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> I know, look, I was just listening to the person saying about the fungus-eating ladybugs, and uh, we've got them on our cucumbers, and they're doing a pretty good job, but they, you know, they probably do need a bit more milk treatment. Uh, they do take a long time to mm. eat a lot of fungus, mm. but, um, and and you're right about, uh, you know, taking off any of the older leaves and... Uh, and now it's got a second spurt of growth coming on since the bugs have been on there, so that, that, that's good. But, uh, yeah, they're around yellow and black things, <laughs> little ladybirds. Yeah. Because um, there is one lady ladybird which is a, a foliage-eating one, and that's a 28-spotted, I think it is. So that, that one does do a bit of damage but uh, all the others are good yeah yeah you so. don't see the 28 spotted i talk about it in classes but i don't see yeah, it around see very it often no 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 anyway that, that was that and it was just good to hear russ saying about uh, not to over fertilize mm. yeah now, he gets it right sometimes doesn't he yeah he does <laughs> <laughs> um i i think you know Sometimes people do have a bit of problems. You even see on Facebook, you see young plants that have been planted and the leaves are going brown and stuff. And I think sometimes people also fertilise when they plant. Yeah. And you often read about it in, in, in some text, and, you know, to do that. But um, And therefore, the, you're getting too much fertiliser because, you know, plants grown by nurseries have probably got yeah. uh, six, six to nine months fertilizer yeah exactly yeah and therefore you, you you're really going to you know create some toxicities and uh, mm. that can be dangerous and uh, and i personally i just think over fertilize you know fertilizing is overdone yeah. <laughs> depending yeah. on totally your soil mm-hmm. you know I, yeah um, i think it, it comes back to what sort of russell was saying before you, you you really need to know your plants and you need to know your soil types of sure, that's and, yeah, that's, and and on that's the right labels, text, like yeah. they're trying to sell you, uh, they're trying to sell a product, so they want you to yeah. use more, so that you go back yeah. and buy more. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's totally different if you're growing vegetables. Yeah. And, mm. um, but for for basic, uh, you know, for, for most gardens, unless you're in very hungry soils, um, it's amazing just uh, how plants will adapt and, and grow without extra fertilizer. Mm. 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 Yeah. I also think, Rog, it's a great way to get to know your garden. You know, if you, yeah. um, you know, there might be a couple of things. You might do some kind of local fertilisation for one or two species in your garden and mm. not have to do yeah. the rest, you know. And it's yeah. the same with yeah. watering, what we were talking about yeah. before. You yeah. have your little indicator species and that sort of stuff. You don't need to put the sprinkler on the whole garden. It might just be some of those herbaceous no. things. And, yeah. I mean, horticulture is a game of observation, isn't it? And without allowing oh, the sure. plants to for tell sure. you what's happening, you, yeah. Yeah. it's hard yeah. to learn stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well... Actually, life's a game of observation. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday morning, Roger. Uh, we might put anyway. it on the wall here, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good on you. Thanks, Thanks Roger. Roger. Catch mate. you later. Thanks. Bye. And it, was, and it was good to have Brett Summer on. That yeah, I know. Great. What a coup. Yeah, yeah. that was good. Yeah. All right. Thanks. See ya. Bye. See ya.
And we have another caller on the line. Good morning to Rosie in Mitcham. Uh, g'day, panel. Hello. Hey there. Um, now, I've got a, I've got echo here, but I'll try to just keep oh, talking. Okay, you're not echoing um, for us, so yeah. um, sorry oh, about that. Oh, that's good. Mm. Flannel flower I've got in a um, pot on my um, front veranda. Um, is there only one flannel flower? This is that Western Australian thing, a lovely white... So Actinotus is a New South Wales species. Yeah. Um, oh, is the main There's one main species that you can grow. There's a, a rare right. pink one, but it's probably Four just the white one that you've got. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a giant um, edelweiss. Mm. <laughs> Do you yes. know one edelweiss? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It totally yeah. does. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so I've had it for a couple of years, and I've had good success, but at the moment she's very leggy and um, sort of looks like it's dying at the base. Um, do you think I should just cut it back? Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think because they're quite hairy as well. It's been a funny season for some of those little um, hairy herbaceous things. So um, yeah, absolutely, uh, cut it back. And so um, I've got to cut what's left of the flowers. Cut it right back to the first leaf. Pack, yeah, yeah, pack, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Because uh, I watered it. Yes, um, I'm, I've got rocks on the top of the pot, so yeah, it's very okay. hard to. Not, I can't mm. stick my finger in there ever to see how wet or dry it is. But when I watered it, all these bubbles came up. I thought, okay, so she's very dry. Yeah, yeah that's very dry. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's got a drainage hole and all, and yet still bubbles came up, so yeah, that's okay. not good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I watered it. But, yeah, she's still this morning. She's not looking happy. Yeah. So I think I've got to just get um, get the secateurs to yeah. her. Yeah, just maybe go easy on the watering as well. So going from one extreme yes. to another can be as stressful as well for a plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so that's, if that's you give it a snip and you've already watered it, yeah. probably not going to need to water it for a little while now okay. until you p- stick your finger in the potting mix until yeah. the field potting mix yeah. starts to feel dry again. Okay, great. Um, now, another point. Um, I've dug up my front lawn. I started that oh, many years ago and gradually more and more of the lawn disappeared. So now I've only got strips of lawn left and awesome. garden beds everywhere, uh, like three garden beds or so, and just these stupid strips of lawn that I've been um, <laughs> having to mow and get around the garden beds. So now I've put cardboard all over the kaikuyu, um, oh, and yeah. it's, dying, oh. it's dying nicely, but I'm thinking I can't just put mulch or something on top no. of that cardboard. It's going to come oh. back, isn't it? Yeah, it will. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it's going to be a lesson in so, persistence, I think. Yeah, it will be. We always do so a now, scalp first, and then the cardboard. Yeah, sorry. Keep oh, going. I mowed. I mowed the lawn and put cardboard down, um, and heaps of cardboard. <laughs> um, but it's coming out the edges, as it will, you know, it'll mm. go for the. Uh, yeah. So I'm thinking I should perhaps pull up the cardboard and do some digging. Yeah. That yeah. Do? And then put cardboard down again. Yeah, we that's what's scalping. We usually take like 50 mil off of, or it, you know, it's got quite a f- intensive root system, but like just cutting that out and then covering it as much as you can and keeping on top of it. It's just very, yeah, pervasive. It's a shocker, isn't it? Is it is a shocker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I will say I did the same thing in my 
new house. So while my wife was unpacking all of our, you know, <laughs> all of the things we needed inside, she said, "Are you going to come in?" And I spent a couple of weeks digging it out and and installing garden beds. And look, a, a little bit of kite popped up, but I didn't even do the cardboard. I just um, ripped it out and mm. um, put it in a skip and and just kind of stayed on it. Um, so it is doable. Um, with a bit of elbow grease and persistence. Would yeah. you guys recommend maybe solarising it with some black yeah. plastic? Do that you can work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. really cook it. I mean, now's the time of year to do <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll still end up with the roots coming. Mm. Yeah, scalping yeah. is probably yeah. the best way to do it. If yeah. You, yeah, if you've got the muscles. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got the muscles, yeah. Good. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Sounds like you're ready for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 can, I, can, I can swing a pick. Oh, yeah. Um... It'd be, so ex- go It'd be very okay. exciting to get rid of that so you can actually plant some really great species as well. So that's, yeah, it's that's like, exciting. Uh, I will then have a little more space. Yeah. It's, it's not just park width I've got left. Yeah. It's a bit bigger than park width. Oh. So, um, yeah, I can fit more plants in now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Rosie. Well, get um, get on I to have, it, Rosie. Yeah. Good now, luck. Oh. Have you got anyone waiting, or can I ask one more thing? Uh, we've got a, we've got a few waiting and a few text messages to get through. Okay, I will let you go and thank you. See very how much we go in the next help. ten minutes. Yeah. Otherwise, call back at five past nine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks, Rosie. Good on you. Thanks very Thank much. You. Bye. See ya. All right, a few text messages to get to. Um, Listener is asking, they have heard that urine is a good fertiliser for citrus. Does it need to be diluted or watered in afterwards, mm. fellas? Yeah. Uh. I don't really squat under lemon trees, guys. <laughs> so, yeah. It is high in nitrogen, which is good for plant leaf growth, and citrus do love it. So you can um, just make sure that, you know, you're adhering to legal things and yeah, yeah no make, public Make sure it's your own. Yeah, make yeah, sure yeah, it's yeah, your yeah. own in yeah. your own backyard yeah. and it's not a public place. I mean, you can always get um, citrus fertiliser as well if you... <laughs> and, yeah. And yep. not Could too much. Option. My little brothers yeah. used to always do it on one of the lemon trees. That was just gross. Yeah. <laughs> it just stinks. I just um, care about other people Melissa does sometimes. ask another interesting question. <laughs> is is that a friend of ours that asked that question? <laughs> yeah, Surely that's, a, that's somebody. Yeah, yeah, someone's <laughs> setting us up. Yeah. Is urine beneficial to other plants? I don't know of anyone that else that whittles on other plants. Oh, I've heard of people and they think that it, I don't know this, but no. apparently they say that it changes the um, genetics of the plant, that it more aligns with your body, and then when you eat it, you get more health benefits. That's uh. apparently the thing. Oh, gosh. But I have, We're going down I rabbit like, holes that we yeah, don't need yeah, to go yeah, yeah. When I was told that, I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> have to pull the crystals out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you plant in the garden on warm, hot days like this? Oh. Uh, Water plants, yes. <laughs> water, can you plant? Oh, uh, yeah, I plant all the water plants now. Anything. Oh, sorry, water plants. plants. Aquatic. Right. Yeah. Mm. But warm, oh, land plants, it's um. just, it's a risk. Like, it goes two ways. If it, what's happening at the moment too is because we've got a really, like, you know, one day we've got this hot, hot yeah. day and then all of a sudden it drops and then we've got the humidity in the, in the ground. There's just too many factors. I would say wait for things to stabilise. You always plant in autumn when the ground is warm and the air is cool. We're, and we're not that far away. We're not far. Yeah. Just yeah. wait that couple of months. Keep it in the pot, water it on these hot days yeah. and keep it in a shady spot yeah. until uh, until another month or so. I, th- I think the risk is if it dries out <laughs> yeah. as, as it's supposed to in the next couple of months, even for six weeks, you're going to have some issues establishing mm. those plants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, establishment can be challenging. Yeah. 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 
Um, Roger, who called him before, if anyone doesn't know, that was Roger Elliott. Um, we love him. He used to be a regular on the show. Rog, you've got a fan. Uh, they would like you to come on again, and I'm going to try yeah. and pull you out of retirement again. I think so you should come back on. Yeah. We'll get that happening. Yeah. He's, he's still got a few marbles going. <laughs> uh, Ross, question for you. Um, listener Alex has just finished his Cert 3 in Hort, and I think I know who this Alex is. He's a student of mine, and he's right. a lovely bloke. Yeah. Would love to work in conservation horticulture. Do you reckon more study is required? Look, not necessarily. I think I think the first thing is um, getting into the industry and meeting some people and doing some volunteer work and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I don't know about you guys, but that's that's how I started. I went mm. and yep. volunteered at a local I indigenous nursery and, and you start to build your network a little bit. So I would um, start tapping some people on the shoulder. And, mm. and for me, I, I, I don't care if you've got a PhD or, or you don't even have a certificate. It's really about... Um, you know, your desire and passion to, to get involved and your ability to, you know, learn on the job and, and build your experience. Um, so I would I would say to Alex, just get out there and meet as many people as you can and, and the world kind of opens up in a yep. funny way when you follow what you're passionate about. Yeah. So, yeah. Friends groups. Absolutely. Field nats. Yeah. Volunteer. Get on the ground yep. and yep. do the work because that's exactly yep. what you look for. And that passion and that drive, yep. that want to do things and hard work. Like, yeah. Get out to. there and yeah. do it. It's not all about just sitting yeah. back and doing some study. You've got to yeah. really... Yeah. yeah. And we know it when we see that passion and the twinkle in the eye. Yeah. Like, mm. yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and memberships of different groups like the Australian Plant Society, yes, mm-hmm. Cranbourne, yeah. Botanic Gardens Friends, if you're interested in, yeah. Yeah. in um, Australian we, stuff. We have a, um, a Cranbourne group who work in the garden as well That's or right. in the nursery. So depending yep. on, you know, what you love, um, you can come along. You know, they do it every fortnight. They're in the garden, um, you know, curating different areas. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right, we've got a couple of other callers to get through. Good morning to Jan in Heathmont. Thank you for being patient. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe, and uh, hello and good morning to the panel. Hello. Good morning. I have just purchased a lemon myrtle and wondering what is the best position to plant it in. Mm. Go, guys. Where, where are you? Heathmont. Where is Heathmont? Where's that again? Eastern. Near Ringwood. Ringwood, yep. Yeah. So I guess... Yeah, you know so, you go. No, you no go. you've already started, Russ. I have. I do have a lemon myrtle at home. Then you um, so my daughter actually makes me lemon myrtle tea quite a lot at home, which is quite oh, lovely. Our kids yeah. love it too. Yeah. It's yeah. so good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hot days, the cold mm. lemon myrtle tea is so yummy. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, and she's been adding a bit of mint too, which has been nice. Oh, so nice. some of the native mint. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Have you given her a cocktail the, shaker yet? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, so lemon myrtles actually don't mind a little bit of cover. So you, mm. you, you don't really want them in summer being exposed to, um, you know, that afternoon sun. So, it, you know, morning's fine, um, but a little bit of cover for them um, and, and nice and well mulched. And, you know, p- potentially a little bit of extra moisture, depending on what your soil's like over, over summer is good. Um, so, yeah, as long as you give them cover, they're, they're pretty they're pretty hardy. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've put my, I put a couple of, uh, lemon myrtles in my in a new garden bed from that was very sandy loamy like it was yep. the the soil was just old lawn mix that had been put there and I've had to really stay on top of the watering yep. this summer yeah and they're establishing as well and probably need to work in some compost to yep. that garden bed yep. so it'll hold on to a bit mm. more water yeah definitely so not and super exposed Jan yeah I've got it in a pot 
it's going to be really hot. Should I be planting it in this hot weather or leave it in the pot? Uh, wait. The Leave it in the pot. Down a bit. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and yep. just put the pot in a shady spot underneath yeah. it, some other plants today. Yeah, on this Will week. Will do. Yep. Great. Thank you for your help. Thank you, no Jen. Thanks, Jen. Bye. Bye. Bit of lemon myrtle love for the. Oh, it's a great plant. For the show today. So it's really good. Uh, we must say good morning to our other caller, Fermi in Reedsdale. Hello. Hey, Fermi. Good morning. Good How morning. are you all? Good. good. How are you? I'm, I'm phoning with my AGS hat on today, <laughs> the Alpine Garden Society. Yep. We've got a, um, a buy-swap sell uh, come happening. It's a very short um, window. We, we open at 11 and usually it's closed by, tw- uh, by 2 o'clock. Oh, it's very short. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a few um, of our members who uh, are going to be selling things. We've got things like... Uh, uh, terrestrial orchids. Um, we we were told that they were his spares, so we're, I asked if they were extraterrestrial. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good one. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, I'm not even a dad. How about that? <laughs> uh, you should be. Yeah. That sort of are, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, but we've also got. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, some of our members grow a lot of different bulbs, so there are a lot of things you won't find on the, yeah. you know, Tesla's bulb list or anything like that, so, and uh, some different perennials as well, so okay. uh, it's going to be held at the Alinda Community House, which is next door to the Alinda Pool, mm-hmm. um, on the, the Alinda Mombalk Road there, and it's uh, starting at 11 a.m. And the date the, the other day? 24th, oh, tw- so it's Saturday in two, in two awesome. weeks' time. And that's another one of those specialty plant groups that we were sort of talking about before that, you know, yeah. if you're into plants, go and join the Alpine Garden Society. You won't you won't find a, a better bunch of people that, that are obsessed with, with plants and, yeah. and, and access to, to plants through that network, to plants that you won't find on the shelves in... Yeah. in, in Sort of commercial nurseries and things is is just unbelievable. So, yeah. and they, they yeah. you know, you guys also support a whole bunch of work cultivating alpine species. So we we're talking mm. about Veronica Nivea before and Brachyscum tagelii. The only reason we could um, trial those things was through the support of the the Victorian Alpine Garden oh, wow. Society. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's not just those plant sales. They do a lot to to kind of grow the industry. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we um, yeah we have a, a grant system that. Um, to um, help promote um, the growing of alpine plants. It's because we're actually now a registered charity. Yeah. And that's one of our charitable works is the uh, the, the uh, enhancement of the natural environment. Yeah. So, yeah, it's amazing um, work. Yeah. 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 So, oh, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We've got a couple of other um, bits to get to. So um, thanks okay. for calling thank in you. and all the best. We'll chat to you thanks, soon. Fermi. Thanks, Thank Bye. you. Bye. Uh, text message from uh, one of our regular panellists, Ben from Treasured Perennials. Um, the benefits of using milk is that it increases the thickness of the cell wall so the fungal infestation cannot penetrate into the chloropla- chloroplast oh. for the proteins. One, oh. with, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Fun fact, I need yeah. to remember that. That's good. <laughs> I thought it had something to do with changing the pH 
of the leaf surface. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're like making more alkaline or something. But there yeah. you go. There you go. Thanks, Ben. And Thank you. Uh, another thing that he says in regards to fertilising, it's all about how you apply it. Um, it's best to foliage spray trace elements because we lack a lot of trace elements in our soils. Um, whenever Ben is on, we always um, pick his brain about fertilisers and trace yeah. elements because he uses ben is things. amazing. And he uses yeah. things other than um, typical NPK. He yeah. did speak at Fernie Creek Hort Society yesterday mm-hmm. um, and we keep pestering him to put his his inf- info in his head down onto some sort of paper. So, yeah. And he's working on it. He's working on it. It's so one of thanks, those ben. areas you could spend ages yeah. just trying yeah. to learn. But yeah. Rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. it is a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, listeners, there is still one double pass left to the Sunday of the Fernie Creek Plant Collectors Fair. Give us a call on 94190155 if you want to snap that up. My name's Chloe Foster. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. And in the studio with me is Tex Moon, Emmeline Bowman and Russell Lark. Another text message, guys. Um, there's a few questions in, in this. It's good today. It's hot. I know. It is. hot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last week, a listener, the same listener um, advi- was advised by uh, the team uh, to use the cut and paint method to get rid of established blue plumbago. Um, they've gone down to the shops and is wondering about the concentration of herbicide to get is 100 grams a liter enough or do they get the 360 gram per liter concentration of herbicide um i'd say the strongest yeah mm. you're asking the wrong person i don't really try and use so much of that yeah, stuff. I, think, yeah. I, I think if you're trying to kill something woody yeah um Basically, what we do is put it in a, you know, an old shoe cleaner. Yeah, the dab yeah. It, um, dab it. And just dab them on. So, Agreed. you don't use too much, but the mm. concentration's really high. So, yeah. you don't want to be spraying um, concentrates no, uh, around. They're going to cut and paint it. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, use a stronger concentration. You can buy, they're, they're literally called dabbers. Yeah. Um, you can buy them off the internet. They're not super expensive. Um, and it means you get some really targeted application yeah. to to the plant and minimise damage to yeah, the only thing I would say with something like plumbago, like they don't have super aggressive root systems, so you can always, you know, put a shovel in the ground. Yeah, 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 they do. I would say that as well. Yeah, Yeah. they do dig out pretty easily if you if you're physically able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, they're asking about the sponge. We covered that question. Um, Are the natural herbicides, e.g., the nonanoic acids? useful alternatives not not for that no. woody no. woody no, weed they're, 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 they're not systemic so they're not going to get into the roots and kill it they're yeah. they're, they're good at uh, good for annuals and things like that but but not for woody weeds but but again i think plumbago yeah it's not something that that comes back it's not a blackberry kind of thing yeah. i think yeah, if you, if you and could, it's just the, the above ground mass of the plant yeah is so much so you cut that back cut, and, then, and then get into it and dig yeah. as yeah. much of it as you can out mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, another text message uh, from Marion. Uh, milk bottle with the corner cut out is for taking taking urine out to the lemon tree. Um, I've set. <laughs> We're back here. <laughs> We're back on it. Um, there's a there's some creative ways of taking wee out to a lemon tree. I'm not going to read the rest of that. Um, <laughs> but thank you, guys. We haven't spoken about any of the plants on this morning. No. Um, Tex, let's do a couple of yours. I'll just do one quickly. Yep. Um, 
and it's sort of topical because it's rhododendron St. Valentine. Oh, so, nice. so we're obviously oh, coming you're an into old romantic. Are you Valentine's giving, Day. Are you giving that to oh. Sam on Valentine's Day? This, this is Day? actually going to my wife. I said you can have it after Sunday. <laughs> um, but it's a great little varia. Um, so a lot of listeners will be aware of varia rhododendrons, those smaller growing, mostly equatorial, kind of tropical, sort of, but usually from way up in the high altitudes. Great group of plants that, that as I spoke about them earlier, they just seem to spot flower year round. There's there's a there's a whole lot of them. It's a, it's another rabbit hole that you can get right into. Now this one is a hybrid and it's it's a hybrid of um, so one of the native rhododendrons is the rhododendron viriosum. So there's viriosum and lockei. Um, and this one is uh, crossed with uh, rhododendron gracilentum which is an, a dwarf um, variety. And this, is, this, this has just got the best of both worlds. It's got the beautiful little uh, red bells of Viriosum, but in a, in a smaller size, but, and, and a nice dwarf compact plant. Um, yeah, I'll put photos of it up, but it's, it's, a, it's an absolute cracker. And it's... Mm. Is, good, it, yep. is it a bit longer flowering than the Australian... Viriosum, because they're usually flowering Christmas, New Year. Well, a lot of the Viriosums are out now um, and, and flowering really, really well now. Um, so this guy is as well. And um, I longer, potentially, um, I think it's it's a full flush. We've got a stock pot of this in the nursery that is just absolutely covered. I'll put a photo up of it when um, for the socials. But, Thanks. But, yeah, and... Grows in pots really well, hanging baskets, in your garden bed. Just just a great plant. And it should plug the Australian Rhododendron Society for that because to get these kind of plants, you're going to have to go to someone like the Australian Rhododendron Society who will be at the Fernie Creek Hort, Good. Hort Sale. Um, and your garden wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that absolutely. group, which is a completely like, volunteer-run group as well. volunteer-run group, absolute experts, specialist group, member-based kind of organisation. Yeah, we, we wouldn't be able to do what we do up in the Denon Ranges Botanic Garden without the Australian Rhododendron Society. And, and again, we've sort of talked about the growing friends from, from Cranbourne. The, the AGS, all of these groups are just so important to the plant world. And, and we would, there'd be a lot of cultivars, species, things that, that just wouldn't exist yeah, in this country totally. if, mm-hmm. without these kind of groups. So, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, I have a rhododendron, the yeah. Lockyer, and it's still... I've said it last time. It's been like three years, and I still haven't had a flower on it. Why? Why? Uh, have you got it in you're, deep dark shade? You're a bad gardener. I like. <sighs> Everything is flourishing. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it is it's under a um like a a clear patio. It's in a terracotta pot. Pot. It, yeah. The foliage is like this. It's huge. Mm. Nothing. What am I doing? I don't have given it any fertilizer or anything like that. No. Um. I mean that that would be an obvious place to start. If if there is a slightly sunnier spot, I would move it. Move it. Um, they they can take a bit of sun. Um, obviously, they don't. They're not going to like that hot, yeah. westerly, northerly sun. But it gets really nice light. I don't know what I'm doing. Must be food. I don't know. Food. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give it some food. I won't starve it anymore. There is though. There's, is it? We are mentioning brand names, but yeah, there's the um, neutral. Product. Neutral is apparently yeah. supposed to do the better. Yeah. 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 
Cool. All right. Mm-hmm. Guys, we've only got a few minutes oh, left, so just know. a couple of other things uh, to get to. Um, listener name who was asking about the plumbago just says thanks for the different options. Um, they don't usually use chemicals, but the cut and paint is a really targeted yeah. approach. Yeah. Minimises further yeah. damage. Um, and, yeah, get out there with your shovel if you can too. Wear gloves, do all the, the right yeah. things. Yep, yep, suit up. Definitely wear. Uh, text message, Stephen Wells and Sue Stewart-Smith plus more are talking about therapeutic horticulture at a symposium in Warrigal on Monday the 4th of March. Details on the uh, Warrigal Garden Club website as well. Um, Russ, you brought in a lovely little bouquet mm. of some of your favourite grevilleas. I did, Let's yes. see how much we get through so that, Russ. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> one of my guilty pleasures. Yeah, I could, I could spend the next hour doing this, actually, but I'll go through it quickly. I've got um, Grevillea cerasia. So this is a New South Wales species, um, sort of around the central coast and um, the Blue Mountains. But this is actually a slightly larger leaf. They, they have really linear leaves, this kind of linear folia group, um, but it has a slightly larger leaf and, th- and they all have these like silvery undersides um, due to the hairs on the bottom of the leaves. So they're quite pretty. Um, but this thing has pink, um, it's called the pink spider grevillea. So you think about grevillea flowers, you've got, you know, sort of the toothbrush flowers and then the kind of conical flowers. This is the, this confluorescence is, oh, this group of flowers looks basically like a, a little spider. And what I like about these um, smaller flower grevilleas is it attracts some of the little honey eaters compared to some of the really dominant um, birds like your miners or your water birds that chase, um, mm, you boys. know, yeah, your little honey eaters out of the garden. Um, so... Uh, we're, we're also doing a lot of work selecting through this linear folia group. So there's there's probably five or six species in um, Victoria from Grevillea australis through to Grevillea garrowidensis and, and Micrantha. So they're, they're all over Victoria. So we're doing some selection work behind the scenes. But that, I, I like that one. For a Cerecia, it's got a bigger flower on it. Yeah. It does. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And, and, and they do all right in shade. They, they still flower in shape, yeah. which is fantastic. Which is unusual these, for grevilleas. Yeah, so this this is planted. It's got a little bit of cover from, like, the late afternoon sun and that high um, summer sun. Um, so this has not stopped flowering. So it's been in my garden for a couple of years, and it flowered as a tube. And, and I, I hate to prune it because there's always flowers mm. on it. So, mm. I mean, sometimes I've got to give her a haircut. But um, hmm. And then I've got just a couple of other ones. Um, Grevillea and Cygnus, um, subspecies Eliotii. Named um, after... Himself, Gwen, we called earlier. Gwen and Roger. Yeah, both think, of them. Because they, they both, um, it was named by Peter Old and Neil Marriott. Um, so, in in their honour. So, I think I think Gwen and Rog um, brought this into to cultivation, if I'm not mistaken. But it's a beautiful sort of holly leaf grevillea. Mm. Uh, again, it has these, um, like, really de- deep, would you call that cerise, almost, yeah. um, flower colour. Um, and it's quite spiky, so the little birds get in there. Yeah. Um, and then uh, grevillea. Russ. I'm going to hold you right there. Do yeah. we next time so that we can talk I told about you it, it could properly. Could be the next hour, Claire. I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. And we'll speak about it for the next hour. After <laughs> yeah. Turn the microphones off. I must thank you yeah. guys so much for coming in today. Thank you to Burn and Tom, our other volunteers, Daniel, Liam, and Vaughan, that look after the socials and podcast. The show will be back at 7:30 next week. Have a lovely Sunday, everyone. Bye, everyone. See ya.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.